All right, chapters 2 and 3, we're going to work through them tonight as best we can. Chapters 2 and 3 deal where the Lord here uh, addresses the seven churches in Asia. Uh, there was more than seven churches in Asia. We know of Hierapolis, we know of uh, Colossae, we know of um, Troas. Uh, they were part of that area too, so... Um, so the whole idea, I think, of writing these to the seven churches was uh, just uh, they represented the churches as the whole. Uh, as he talks to each congregation, uh, he finishes it with the idea that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, so obviously they're, they're, uh, Jesus expected these, whatever he says to these individual congregations uh, to be dispersed to throughout the uh, the rest of the congregations, and of course the brotherhood. Uh, he begins with to the angel of the church at Ephesus, the word angel there. Um, it could also be translated messenger. Young's literal translation translates it messenger. Uh, the word angelos just li literally means messenger, and, and the uh, context determines whether it's an angel, whether it be a regular, you know, someone carrying a message. So uh, there's a lot of discussion. Is this an angel? Uh, is this the preacher of that congregation? Uh, you know, is the, who's this messenger here? And we're really not told. But to the angel or the messenger of the church at Ephesus, right, Ephesus, write these things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Uh, what do we know about the seven stars and the seven golden lampstands? We know something about them. Seven stars are the seven angels, seven messengers, seven golden lampstands. Well, if you look up, let's see. The seven lampstands, verse 20, the verse right before that. The seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So the lampstands represent the churches. So in the hand, this says he, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So what do we know? Who's, who's talking here? Jesus. And he holds what? The messengers in his hand. If you hold something in your hand, what do you have? You have control over it, don't you? And he walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. He's in the midst of what? The churches. So when we gather together, in a sense, Jesus is here with us. And he says in the phrase there, and these things says, uh, the NET Bible in its footnotes says that's a figure of speech, an idiom. And, and what it means is the solemn pronouncement. In other words, this is the solemn pronouncement of one, like the Son of Man, we saw in chapter 1, who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, and he has a message for this congregation at Ephesus. Well, what do we know about Ephesus? First, we know it's in Asia. We know anything else about Ephesus. Acts chapter 20. Paul met with the elders from Ephesus. He was there about three years. 
It was the fourth most important city in the Roman Empire. Rome was first, Alexandria was second, Antioch of Syria was third, and Ephesus was the most important, fourth most important city in the Roman Empire. And it was most important because it had a lot of trade and it was a religious center. Uh, the Temple of Diana. Remember, great is the god Diana when the silversmiths uh, thought they were going to lose some um, uh, income uh, because of what Paul and, Bar Paul, and Barnabas? Paul and Barnabas were teaching. And so you have this, this great commercial city, trade from all points of the compass, passed through Ephesus. It was on major trade routes. Also, it was sighted at, whoops, site of the Temple of Diana. Hold on a second. I just lost all my notes. Okay. Um, Paul spent between two and three years there, Acts 20, 28 through 31. Uh, Jesus identifies himself, the Son of Man here identifies himself as one who controls the messengers and walks among the churches. The word hold there is a verb of strong action, implying to take into one's possession, to grasp, to seize, to hold fast. So Christ is holding fast those messengers. And so we see here there's a pro, uh, he's making a solemn pronouncement. He knows their works and their toil. And that labor there, that toil, it's to work until, you know, that old song, you know, you work your fingers to the bones. And that's the thought, work to exhaustion. He knows their works, their labor, their patient, their patient endurance, one translation says. He knows their intolerance for those who are evil. They don't put up with wickedness. He knows that they have put to the test those who claim to be apostles, apostles. And he found, found out that they were liars, so they tested the spirits to see if they were so. They had endured their difficulties with steadfastness, and they continued to work hard and have not lost heart. And so here's a congregation. They're all about the truth. They're all about making sure that what they hear is the truth. They're not putting up with any foolishness. They've endured all the trials that is put before them. They've been steadfast. But the Lord says, I have something against you. And what was it? They had left their first love. The interesting thing is that we're not told what that is. That word first there, it can mean first in time. It can mean first in position. It can mean first in importance. And so it could mean any one of those things. Um, we just don't know. Uh, there's a lot of conjecture about it. And they, whatever it was, they lost the love that was before all others, first in time. They had lost the love that was above all others. And they had lost the love that was greater than all others. So it was one of those three things. Well, the thing that comes to my mind, but it's just you know my thoughts on it, what's the two great commandments? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Can we do things but not do them from a position of love? Can we serve God? Can we do what God says? Can we fight against evil but not do it from a position of love? Of 
course we can. But what's Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? If we do it, it's all just noise. And he talks there about, you know, if I do all these things, I serve God, I do work, you know, benevolence and all those things, that if I have not love, it doesn't profit me anything. And so whatever it was that they lost, it was important. Whatever that love was that they lost, that it was important enough to Jesus to say that I've got this against you. And he tells them, what does he tell them to do? They're to remember from where they had fallen and remain fallen. That's the, the strength of that, what he's saying there. And respond accordingly by repenting and to start once again doing the first works. So that love may have something to do with the first works. And if they did not, the, uh, the one who grasped the seven stars, the one who walked amidst the lampstands, would remove their lampstand. What does that mean, to remove their lampstand? If the lampstand represents that you're part of the church, and Christ says, I'm going to remove that lampstand, what's he saying? You're not part of his people anymore, are you? There's a problem here. You're not my church anymore. You're not my body anymore. You're not my bride anymore. So we could have brethren that may have Church of Christ on the sign, but they're really not part of the bride of Christ anymore. And then there's the question that we have to ask us as we go through these different congregations. Have we lost our first love? Are we just going through the motions? Or are we doing what we do because of the love that's first, the love that's most important, and the love that's greatest? So we have to ask ourselves. Even so, Jesus said, they continued to despise the deeds of the Nicolaitans as the Son of Man did. What did the Nicolaitans do? We don't know. That's a trick question. We don't know much, hardly anything about him. If you read a commentary and he tells you what they're doing, he's probably making it up as he goes along. We just don't know hardly anything about them. Of the Nicolaitans, yeah. Ouch, what? This that you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. So they weren't holding the doctrine, they were hating the deeds of them. Okay? Okay. <laughs> and he says, to him that prevails, him that overcomes, prevails, will be granted to eat from the tree of, of the light, tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. We get into Revelation chapter 22, I believe it is. Yeah. In uh, chapter 22, uh, let's see, uh, of Revelation. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life, 
which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. So when the, Jesus says to them, to him that prevails will be granted to eat from the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. What's he saying about the person that prevails? The person that overcomes. It's going to be with him in heaven, aren't they? Aren't they? So here we have a church that's loyal, but they're lacking in that they've left that first love. All right? Then to the messenger of the congregation at Smyrna, the solemn pronouncement of one like the Son of Man, who is the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. All right? And if you'll notice, as we're going down through chapter 2 and 3, he's going to use pretty much the same description that we see in the, towards the end of chapter 1, beginning with that vision of Christ and those things that John uh, sees. So here's one who is the first and the last who was de dead and come to life. He knows their distress and their abject poverty. Notice what he says. These things, says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. I know your works, your tribulations, and your poverty... But what does he say? You're rich. And that word poverty there, it doesn't mean you just, you know, like you're not making enough money. It just doesn't mean like you don't have a lot of nice things. It means that you're so poor that you have to depend upon someone else for your daily bread. In other words, you're a beggar. He says, I know your poverty. But he says... You're rich. How can I be so poor that the very necessities of life I have to beg or, or get from someone else and the Lord say that I'm rich? Well, God looks at things differently than we do, don't we? Who do we consider? How, what, in our mind, what would make our children a success? Good job. Good education. What else? We don't normally say that, do we? We talk about, I want my child to be a success. I want him to have a good education, a good job, nice wife, nice family, nice home. Did they have any of that? But Jesus said they're rich. And sometimes you and I lose sight of, of what our responsibility is to our children. Our responsibility is not to give them the greatest education in the world. It's not to give them, you know, make sure they got nice clothes and make sure that they live in a nice house and all those things. Our fundamental responsibility is to teach them about Jesus. And if we don't do that, we failed our children. And if we don't embrace Christianity in our own lives and follow Christianity in our own life, I would contend that we don't even know how to love our children. Because God tells us what true love is. And if we don't know what God says about love, and if we don't know what God says about raising our children, where are we getting our information? We're getting it from the world. We're getting it from the world. So here's a congregation, the Lord says, you look at you, you are poor, you are destitute, but he says, you are rich. And I know the blasphemy, the evil speaking 
of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Remember back in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, where Paul's writing, and he says, Not all Israel is of Israel. In other words, the true Israel of God were those of faith that had the faith of Abraham. But here's Jews that they were descendants of Abraham, but they didn't have the faith of Abraham. And he said they're of the synagogue of Satan. And we know from our study of the New Testament that the Jews were persecuting the early Christians and trying to incorporate Judaism into Christianity. And even those, as we read about in the epistle to the Hebrews, were thinking about leaving Christianity and going back to the law of Moses. And so here Jesus says they're of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear, he says. Do not, and I think the thought is, let me see if I check my notes. He, he says, commands them to stop being afraid. That... Uh, uh, stop being afraid of any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. So the devil, he says, was about to throw some into prison where they would be tested, suffer tribulation ten days. The number ten suggests completeness. Completeness of order, marking the entire round of everything. In other words, here's 10, it's completeness. In other words, the thought here is not that they were going to be prison, put into prison for 10 literal days. The thought is that they're going to be tested to the point they think that they're not going to be able to endure. They're going to be tested so hard that they're going to feel like their backs are breaking or their knees are crumbling. They're going to be tested so hard that they don't think they could go another moment. And in the face of that, Jesus says, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The victor's crown. It's not a crown of a king there, but it's the crown like they gave the victor in the Olympics. It was a victor's crown, a crown of victory. And so he tells them, in the face of all that you're facing, in your tribulations, in those of blasphemy, and there you are in, in, in the, where, where the Jews are, uh, are speaking against you, and you're going to be tried here. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who prevails, he who overcomes, shall not be hurt by the second death. You know, you think about this. If we live faithfully for Jesus, when he comes again, what's he going to say? Well done. Well done. There's not going to be that final separation between us and God. And so here's, that's what he's saying to the church in Smyrna. You see, I had some notes here. I got, ah. Uh, okay. 
Smyrna was a city that had been resurrected from the dead. It had been destroyed 700 years previously uh, to the first century and had laid in ruins for 300 years. So when Jesus said to them, I am he who was dead and come to life, it was something that they could relate to. All right, so any questions on the first two cities? We come to Pergamos. And in Pergamos, he says to the angel or the messenger of the church at Pergamos, write, These things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. When we think about Rome and we think about their army, what was their choice of weapon? They had that big shield that covered them and they would... You know, they would form what they called the turtle, where they were completely covered so arrows couldn't come with them with those big six-foot shields. But they carried that double two-edged sword. He says, I am he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Well, what do you think that's going to mean? When here you are, you're facing a group, and they're under the oppression of the Roman Empire, and their weapon of choice is the two-edged sword. And here... One like the ancient and one like the Son of Man says, I have the two-edged sword. Going to catch your attention, isn't it? And all this is to show as we go through chapter 2 and chapter 3 and then chapter 4 and chapter 5 is that Jesus knows what's going on and he is the one that's in control. He's the one that is in power. Not the emperor, not Rome. That it's him, it's God. It's in control and in power and rules over the kingdoms of men. So he says to the, per, uh, there's, um, to the uh, church there at Pergamos, uh, these things, says he, the solemn pronouncement, he has a sharp-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell and where Satan's throne is. So here's Pergamos, Satan's headquarters, hell's headquarters. I know your works where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name. And do not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So here's Pergamos. They had been faithful. Even in faithful in the face of persecution, even faithful when one of their members... Antipas was martyred. Tradition has it he was put into a metal like a bronze bull and roasted to death. Now whether that's true or not, I don't know. But where they were, they lived in a very worldly location. Satan's throne was. Pergamus was the center of emperor and pagan worship. In other words, it was, uh, let's see, very loyal to Rome. Uh, It referred to itself as the temple warden of a temple dedicated to Caesar worship. Uh, It's where parchment, which the Greek word for that is pergama, was made. It was invented there. Uh, It had a library, which was the largest outside of Alexandria, of over 200,000 volumes. And so here's a city that's the center of emperor and pagan worship in the area. And they continued to hold fast and had not begun to deny the faith, even when one of their number, Antipas, was murdered. However, Jesus says, I have a few things against you. 
because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit fornication or sexual immorality. So, and he also says, thus you also have uh, those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which, I, which thing I hate. So here were there some who held the doctrine of Balaam and others who held the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Um, Balaam, of course, was the one that when Barak, 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 yeah, the king of Moab, came to him and he wanted to, Balaam to prophesy against Israel. And Balaam says, I can only do what God says. And Balaam went and he, didn't, he prophesied for Israel. And so he could never get any money out of Barak. So he came up with plan B. And plan B in which he could get money was he convinced Barak to send the Moabite women over to Israel. And then to entice them and then eventually lead them into worshiping idols. And so he compromised and counseled Barak to send for the women, send for the women of Moab to entice the men of Israel. Numbers chapter 25, one and th- uh, verses 1 through 3, and chapter 31 and verse 16. And we're told in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 15 uh, that Balak, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, he did it for money. And so they, he goes on here, he said, some hold that doctrine. In verse 16, he says, repent or else I will come quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes or prevails, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written in which no one knows except him who receives it. So those who prevail, they're commanded to repent immediately, or the Son of Man would come and war against them. And those that prevailed would be given hidden manna to eat or a new stone or on a stone a new name written and and a new name on which only they would know. Uh, It may refer to Isaiah 62 verses 1 and 3. 1 through 3. For Zion's sake I will not hold my peace and for the Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Um, there also um, the thought that, uh, let me get this here. The hidden manna may have been an allusion to the manna uh, that was hidden in view in the Ark of the Cup, hidden from view in the Ark of the Covenant. You know, in the Ark of the Covenant were some manna and a pot of manna, Aaron's rod, uh, and the Ten Commandments. Um, to eat of this manna may suggest fellowship with God. Uh, there's a tradition among the Jews. Again, this is you know you can take it for what it's worth. Uh, that Jeremiah had taken the Ark of the Covenant containing a golden pot of manna with him when he fled to Egypt uh, before the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. Some taught that at the initiation of the kingdom age, Jeremiah would return bringing the Ark with him and would serve a feast of manna that had been hidden for centuries in the Ark. And so maybe this thought had something to do with that, uh, that tradition.
Um, a white stone. Uh, in Revelation, white is the color of holiness, purity of heaven. Um, the hair of Jesus in chapter 1, verse 14, was white. The garments worn by the elders in chapter 4, verse 4, are white. The horse on which Christ goes forth to conquer is white, chapter 6, verse 2. Uh, the second on horse on which he sits is white, uh, chapter 19, verse 11. The throne of judgment is white. Thus it seems to suggest you know, uh, uh, purity, holiness, approval, victory. Um, Another thought with the stone is that it was the practice of a judge in first century uh, handing an accused criminal either a black stone signifying condemnation or a white stone indicating acquittal. The message then would, message then would be that though Christians may stand condemned in the Roman courts, uh, they will be justified at, the bar, at, the, at, at eternal judgment. Uh, the new name, uh, another thought that maybe have a first century con uh, connotation. Um, some hold that the white stone with a person's name written upon it served as sort of a pass for admission to certain functions, uh, like the feast in the idol worship, and almost like a ticket. And so if this view is correct, the meaning here would be that those who do not compromise themselves with idols will receive a pass, a stone with a name on it, admitting them into, obviously, that heavenly relationship. Uh, Thyatira, the last one in chapter 2, to the, angel, uh, to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience, and as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual, uh, sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her uh, sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds of the hearts and hearts, and I will give to each one according to their works. Uh, now to you, I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast to what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end um, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, as I have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here's the pro solemn pronouncement of one who has eyes like flames of fire and feet like fine brass. In Revelation uh, Um, the, the eyes of fire and the fain, uh, feet like fine brass uh, stands in contrast to the sun god called Triumnus. And he was a god of Thyatira, represented with flaming rays and feet of burnished brass. And the name that we would probably know that god by is Apollo. 
And so they knowed him as Tyramus. Uh, we would know him as Apollo. And so it seems to be in contrast to that. And that was a principal god in um, Thyatira. Uh, he says he knows their works, their love, their service, their faith, their patience, endurance, their patient endurance. And he said their works had increased with time. In other words, they'd worked more things as they, uh, as they went on. However, they permitted a certain woman, a Jezebel, to teach and seduce Christians uh, in, to engage in idolatry. We think back of another Jezebel who was married to King Ahab who you know, tried to take God out of Israel. And she tried to get the northern kingdom to uh, worship Baal and, and the uh, Ashereths. And so um, you know, here's a, another lady, a, a woman along that line. Um, Homer Haley in his commentary suggests that this woman was teaching a compromising position with regard to the religious practices of the trade guilds. And those guilds would have, they would have you know, their own gods and things. And so he seems to think that she was promoting those uh, idols and things to the Christians. Uh, she had refused to repent, the text said, that she had been given sufficient time. And the text said she would be cast into a sick bed and those who follow her into great tribulation. And st- unless they repented, their children, her children would be struck dead. And all the called out will know that he is the one who searches mind and hearts and gives to each one's according to their works. Uh, throw into the sick bed, according to Lunida in their lexicon, is an idiom for causing illness. In other words, in some way she would be ill, whether it be a physical illness or, or spiritually ill. Um, to those who did not follow Jezebel, who did not know the depths of Satan, who had not learned the so-called deep secrets of Satan, uh, the footnotes of the New English translation says, the Lord would place no other burden than to hold fast to what they had. Um, The word, uh, let me, well, maybe I can get through this. The word for know there, gnosko, suggests knowing with experience. And so uh, one of the commentators suggests that because he talks about knowing the depths of Satan, that he suggests that the followers of this woman believe that to understand the deep things of Satan, to know them, that one must experience them. In other words, they claimed that they, they killed the flesh by indulging the flesh. And that was sort of a, um, a Gnostic, you know, some of the extreme Gnostics held that, you know, you have your flesh, your flesh was all evil, and, and the spirit was all good. And some of the extreme Gnostics believed, well, I can do all kinds of, of licentious and, and uh, uh, physical type things that are contrary to, to the word of God in a, in a way of, because... My flesh has nothing to do with my spirit, but also for some it was like I could kill off the flesh by engaging in this depravity. And so that may suggest here uh, what this uh, commentator is saying since uh, the word know here suggests an experience. That there were those that thought, well if I experience these things then you know, I can't know the depths of Satan or, or, uh, unless I experience them. And, and in that way then I can control them or turn away from them. Uh, he tells them, to him who prevails and remains faithful, uh, the Lord would give authority over the nations as he has received authority. Uh, he would be given the morning star. There's much been proposed about the morning star. 
Uh, in Revelation 22, verse 16, Jesus is called the bright and morning star. It may just be a, a symbolism uh, of royal splendor. Uh, the victor king Je Jesus is the brilliant morning star in royal splendor. Uh, he gives to every faithful believer the gift to be like him in royal splendor. He and all, all these other victors shall shine together. Uh, so, but just it's hard to determine exactly what the writer meant at that time. But we know that Jesus is later called the bright and morning star. Each one of these cities, as he goes through them, some he only says good things about. Smyrna and Philadelphia. Some he says good and bad. And then there are those like Laodicea that he only has bad things to say. And we're going to go through those and we're going to see how he tells them, I know what's going on, I know what you're dealing with, and that you need to turn from that so that you might prevail and enjoy these blessings that are there for you. All right, we'll pick up next week. Keep your handouts, please.